welcome to the Emerging Tech Horizons podcast. My name is Arun Serafin. I'm the Deputy Director of the Emerging Technologies Institute here at the National Defense Industrial Association. I'm sitting in as guest host here for my boss, Dr. Mark Lewis, who's the Director of the Emerging Technologies Institute. And it's my pleasure today to have my, as my guest, Mr. Joe Bryan, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer and Senior Advisor for Climate for the Secretary of Defense. Um, Prior to his appointment, Joe was consultant focused on clean energy technology and its intersection with national security. He's previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, where he was responsible for policies related to the department's installation and operational energy programs. Before that, Joe and I knew each other in the Senate, where he led investigations for the Senate Armed Services Committee. He was on the professional staff of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as the Permanent Select uh, Subcommittee on Investigations, which is a part of the Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee. And prior to that, we shared a boss, and you, you worked right. for Senator Carl Levin from Michigan in his personal office. It's a nice long resume. Thanks for joining me today, <laughs> Joe. Right. Sure. So Good to see you again. Today we're, we're going to try to talk about the department's priorities right. in energy and climate sustainability, and you're the perfect person to lead us through this conversation. So. First, just tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to this current role. Great. Well, you read half my origin story on the bio, so we'll, uh, we'll start with the interesting bits, and then we can always get to that. I, I, grew, up in, uh, I grew up in Cleveland, uh, the great north coast and the rock and roll capital of the world, and I think that's probably an important data point. Came east for school, uh, graduate school, and then um, spent a lot of time uh, working energy policy in the northeast. Uh, around the time in the early 90s when we were going through a lot of utility restructuring. Um, then I went overseas for a couple of years and worked on energy policy in southern Africa before coming back to the States and uh, moving to Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, I worked in the House of Representatives for a while with Congressman John Lewis. Then uh, uh, came over and joined the Senate staff of uh, Senator Carl Levin, who uh, we both worked with. He's a, he's a fabulous person, a fabulous senator, and a great, a great boss. I spent about uh, 14 years uh, with Carl and uh, in the capacities that you mentioned in, your, uh, in the opening here. And then I went over at the end of the uh, last two years of the Obama administration was as the DAS for energy at Navy uh, and worked with, uh, with uh, Secretary Mabus. And energy, if, if folks recall from that time, energy and climate were actually a high priority for, for Secretary Mabus. And I think in a lot of ways he was, he was ahead of his time in thinking through some of these things. And, uh, uh, I left in the intervening years at the end of the Obama administration and came, then came back uh, under President Biden to, uh, to do the climate and, and some of the energy work for the Secretary of Defense, and Deputy Secretary of Defense. So, so that's, uh, uh, that's where I'm coming from. Okay, so after that career path, now you're the Chief Sustainability Officer of the Department of Defense. So what does that mean? Yeah, so interestingly, I, I joined the administration a year and a half ago, roughly, uh, and I was the, uh, made the Chief uh, or the, uh, the Senior uh, Climate Advisor to the Secretary and the Deputy. And then uh, or actually, earlier this year in uh, in 2022, I took the title of uh, I was assigned the title of Chief Sustainability Officer. And, and Chief Sustainability Officer is actually a, a position that's been in the department for some time, going back to the Obama administration. Um, it previously existed within uh, Acquisition and Sustainment, and it was normally the Assistant Secretary over there. But um, this administration, understanding the priority that climate and advanced energy have for this administration, and also understanding the cross-cutting nature of sustainability climate issues and that they're not something that you can just assign to ANS or any one component of the department. Um, what the secretary decided to do was to pull that position out of the bureaucracy and put it in the front office. This is uh, pretty consistent with a lot of what you see in the, in the private sector 
putting the chief sustainability officer in the C-suite, uh, having them report to the, uh, to the CEO of a company, and then responsible for sort of strategic initiatives across organizations. And that's what we've tried to, tried to mirror or replicate in our offices. We are, it is not our job as the climate officer or as the chief sustainability office to, to run the whole department. Our job is to identify priorities, uh, the strategic direction of the department when it comes to climate and sustainability, clean energy, um, and then to, to work with the components and the services to make sure we're delivering uh, and holding ourselves accountable to the objectives and, and goals that we've set for ourselves. So we have a small office within the secretary's office, a handful of people, and we work across the department um, with all the components and the services to advance uh, the secretary's administration's agenda around climate and, and energy. So sustainability, climate, um, clean energy, those aren't terms we usually associate with warfighting, with power projection, with deterrence, with uh, operational readiness. How do I connect those two? Yeah, that's a great question and, and something that we is really the focus of what we do in our everyday work. So what we know is that the department's core mission is to defend the United States, to deter aggression, and to prepare ourselves force to fight and win wars should that become necessary. And our climate agenda and our energy agenda are exceptionally well aligned uh, with that core objective, core mission. Um, and let me explain to you why. Um, look, what we know is that climate change is causing tremendous dislocation and challenges around the world. And what that does is create significant new mission for the Department of Defense. So climate from uh, displacing people who are ending up from uh, from Central America migrating north and ending up at the U.S. southern border to places like the Sahel to Syria. What we know is that climate change is causing significant issues for local governments and is creating challenges for stability uh, around the world. Now, so that's kind of regional instability in the same way that religious extremism that's right. or um, information operations through use of social media, things like that, are going to create these hotspots where our forces might be necessary. That's right, that's right. And what we know is that it's creating a demand signal for us, whether that's humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, defense support to civil authorities, or as you say, uh, instability that's, that's uh, climate as a contributor to, which then ends up in our job jar, right? Uh, and things that the Department of Defense is asked to do. So it's creating demand for new missions. And the interesting thing about climate change is it's also at the same time, um, challenging our ability to respond to that demand. So um, it impacts climate impacts readiness, right? Uh, it certainly impacts resources if you look across from Tyndall to, uh, to Pensacola to, uh, to Offutt Air Force Base to the West Coast and what we see now with wildfires and water. Uh, the challenges to the department in terms of keeping us, ourselves ready to do our job are, are exceptional and cross-cutting. So, so are there good examples of missions being affected by these kinds of Event. Sure, the National Guard mission is, is an easy one, right? We, we spend, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the National Guard commander has said that uh, we used to have what's called a fire season, and now we have a fire year. Uh, guard missions for uh, wildfires have increased something like tenfold over the, past, over the past decade. So we're seeing significant demands on the force from things like wildfire fighting or, um, and also from uh, things like responding to hurricanes. Uh, we just saw that. So that off tempo then affects personnel, affects equipment, affects, affects all those budgets, things. Right? Yeah, okay. all those things. And, and I mean, the, the cost, if you think about cost from uh, something like Tyndall, uh, $5 billion cost for Hurricane Michael. Uh, at Camp Lejeune was something like $3 billion. 
So creating demand for forces and at the same time impacting our ability to respond to demand. And the interesting thing about our, our climate and energy work is that our solutions to some of those challenges uh, what, with, respect to, with respect to climate um, are also aligned with our mission readiness, right? So if you think about our logistics challenges in the Pacific, for example, uh, what we know is that um, we are not going to have a free pass to deliver what we need when we need it to the places we need it in the Pacific. Our logistics are going to be contested should we find ourselves in a contingency. Now, one of the best ways you can mitigate the risk of contested logistics is to not require logistics in the first place. So anything we can do to, to make the force more efficient, to make our ships, our airplanes, our tactical vehicles more efficient, to, uh, to uh, deploy distributed generation and energy storage, to alleviate the demand for liquid fuel, anything we can do there uh, not only uh, mitigates the logistics risk, but also happens to be good for the climate. Uh, setting aside the fact that it brings with it some significant combat capabilities. So the alignment of our mission objectives and our climate and energy related agenda are, are, are exceptional. And that's what we work towards every and I, day. And I don't want to lose the combat capability piece, especially because we're the Emerging Technologies Institute. Right. But if, I mean, the way we think about this, we think about energy efficiency, reducing the load on the dismounted soldier or Marine, less batteries to carry, less whatever to carry. Increasing the range of ground vehicles, increasing the range of, uh, of ships, increasing the range of planes, increasing potentially the speed on missiles and things like that. And so uh, time on target for drones, yeah. right? So those are all combat impacts or things that happen to be resulting from energy efficiency, which you might also say has a positive impact on the climate. Yeah, no question. Uh, I mean, an easy one is, is, uh, is uh, hybridization or electrification of ground tactical vehicles. Look. We know that massive advancements, very fast advancements on battery technology in the commercial sector um, offer potentially significant capabilities for the Department of Defense and our military. Um, things like an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle can be on silent watch for much longer. An electric vehicle or a, or a, or a hybrid uh, vehicle can have a, a, a shorter, um, uh, less, require less of the logistics system. It can, be, um, it can actually extend range. Um, it can be... Um, can have lower heat signatures. So all kinds of, uh, in fact, can, you, you need battery technology to, uh, to um, support you know, uh, platform-based uh, directed energy weapons and new capabilities that we want uh, to integrate into our, into, our, um, into our platforms. So in that case, something that's happening, development that's happening very quickly because our transportation system is going electric very quickly, that rebounds to us as a, as a significant combat capability. And as you say, it also happens to be good for the climate, but we pursue these things because they provide us capability, not simply because they're, they're good for the climate. Seems like these technology area you're working and also ties into with another major DOD initiative that we care about at ETI, which is working more closely with the commercial sector. It seems like there's a lot of innovation coming from the commercial sector in all of these energy efficiency spaces. So how do you tap into that and bring those technologies into, into the defense? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point and a really good question. So the truth of the matter is, is there's something on the order of a trillion dollars in private money invested in, we'll stick with the battery supply chain, right? There's, there's about a trillion dollars up and down the supply chain from extraction to processing to battery production. Um, that trillion dollars is advancing that technology exceptionally rapidly. Um, we, we just can't match that in the Department of Defense, nor should we try. I mean, we have specialty battery needs that we might, for example, want to really hone in on. But for most of our platforms, and we have thousands and thousands of military platforms that rely on battery technologies, 
we can be a fast follower to the, uh, to the commercial industry who's investing a tremendous amount of money, as we said, in that technology. In that respect, we look, we need to look, we are looking and we need to look outside the four, five walls of the Pentagon into the commercial space to see what's happening. And I think that's also true across the energy industry. I mean, a lot of innovation is happening in advanced solar, advanced renewables, uh, battery technologies, control systems, all of that technology is coming out of the private sector and I think that's where we need to look. Now, how do we, how do, we do that is a really good question. Um, one of the things we've recognized uh, in the department is the need to, for all the reasons I described earlier, to really get after energy efficiency and distributed generation support for our uh, deployed force, particularly in the Pacific, so that we can reduce uh, logistics demand and mitigate some of the risks that we know come along with that. Uh, so in April of this year, the Deputy Secretary put out a directive that um, energy demand reduction should be a part of every acquisition program, whether it's a new system or whether it's upgrades to existing systems. Um, and following that, acquisition and sustainment put out some guidance to, uh, to the services and we're all working through this big problem. What we know is that we know some things inside the department, but the development of technologies and capabilities frequently comes from the private sector and from your members and, and members of the defense uh, community. And so what we need is we are sending out a demand signal and what we also need is uh, a supply signal, right? We need people to come and talk to us and tell us what should we be looking at? What does the commercial sector see both today and what's coming? And where should we be placing our bets? Because we think this, this whole sector of energy is, um, is transforming so quickly. We're in a global, global industrial revolution when it comes to energy. And that change is happening in the private sector and, and we need to make sure we're facing that. We're hearing from you members. So you're, you're in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, work for the Secretary, you talked about the Deputy Secretary pushing out guidance. Most of the money in the department is spent by the services. The requirements are written by the services. So how are you influencing the activities of services in the near and the long term to sort of be consistent with what you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, so the, the guidance that the, the deputy put out in April uh, led to uh, a review by ANS of service programs and service activities to support uh, demand reduction, energy efficiency in the force and on platforms. So we are going through a process now of determining, okay, what there's been, for example, we don't want to get too in the weeds here, but there's been an energy uh, key, uh, key performance parameter in place for systems for a decade. How are we doing? Right. That? Uh, the, I think the truth is we, we could be doing a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, but services, as you point out, that own those programs. So elevating this discussion to the secretary's level, making sure the services all understand the objectives here, and then doing real, no kidding reviews of service programs to see how they line up. And I think what we're seeing across the services now is some, is some leadership and some understanding of the challenges we face are joint and cut across the services. When you think to the Pacific and our logistics challenges, and that we all need to be part of that solution. So I think there's, there's progress, but we have to work with the services every day on this, because you're, you're right, we, uh, it's, it's they who, who, uh, who own the requirements and embody systems. So how are we, we're talking about NDI members and commercial sector providing the technologies and the innovation that could be incorporated into achieving these kinds of goals. Where should members be looking for, for these kinds of opportunities? Who should they be talking to? Not everyone can find their way into the Chief Sustainability Officer's office, so where are the right points of contact? So um, program offices, uh, this demand signal, while, it's, while this is relatively new and due, due time, it's very new and that this uh, guidance came out from the deputy in April, uh, acquisition statement conducted their review, review and they're in the middle of reviewing service 
uh, programs, uh, the program offices should be feeling a demand signal for what can we do to improve uh, the energy performance of our systems that we are uh, that we are responsible for. Whether that potentially is a differentiator on who wins awards or things like that. That that exactly, and even for existing systems, where are the improvements? Look, most of what we have in the force is existing, right? We have what we have now. We're buying new things, but we're going to have what we have for a while. And just because uh, things exist doesn't mean they can't perform better. And in fact, they have to perform better to enable new capabilities and also mitigate some of these risks we're talking about. So even talking to program offices about your existing system and saying, hey, if we did things a little bit differently or if we, if we operated this system a little bit differently, if we incorporated this technology at this point in the system, we may be able to make some improvements against what we know is an overarching strategic objective. Um, and it's important, frequently we look at uh, programs as one-offs, but any demand you create for fuel or logistics on a single platform, that aggregates up to, to you know, the entire, uh, the entire department. And, and so when you create uh, a demand on the joint force, uh, it's not just you who are creating the demand, it's all kinds of other systems that are doing the same things. And those things add up. So I think individual conversations both about what's coming down the line in terms of future systems, but also how can we make improvements to existing systems? And we should, we should have an open door to those kinds of conversations. So uh, we're recording this during election season here in Washington. Uh, to my knowledge, the previous administration did not have a senior advisor for, for climate, um, for, to the secretary, but this administration does. The word climate implies that this is not the most bipartisan issue. Um, what's been your experience on whether or not this has been embraced as something that the department should go after on a bipartisan basis, or if not, what inroads are you making to try to make it more bipartisan? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I think uh, I think we all recognize what's going on outside of our four, four walls, right? There's just change happening, and I think we need to be we need to be uh, we need to understand that, and we need to be able to operate as a force in the context of that change. The truth is that that climate change not only impacts the Department of Defense in the United States, it affects our allies and partners, and it affects our adversaries and competitors, and the alliances, the countries, the militaries that are best equipped to respond to changes in the environment around us and are most resilient to those changes are going to have a competitive advantage. And so I think we, as a department, would be making a mistake not to pay attention to what, what's happening around us. I'll say this, I think, I think you may have, I speak to this too, Run from your time in the hills, that these ideas of operational energy efficiency, of reducing sustainment costs, reducing logistics requirements, uh, those are very bipartisan ideas. Operational energy has been around, operational energy uh, initiatives have been around for a long time and there's been pretty strong bipartisan support for it, mostly because it just makes sense from a warfighting perspective. Uh, I think similarly when you look at what we're doing on our installations, the truth is, is we face a threat environment, sure from climate, but also from things like cyber attacks or even kinetic attacks that could make the commercial electric grid or commercial gas supplies vulnerable. And we as a department and our installations rely on those commercial grids and pipelines for our performance. Now, the best way to mitigate some of those risks is to A, become super efficient so you don't demand as much of the grid. Two, uh, to put distributed generation and storage inside the fence line to keep critical missions up and running should a weather event or a cyber attack or a kinetic attack make the commercial grid um, unavailable. And so those things that you do that I just described, distributed generation, energy efficiency, are not only good for the climate, but those are what you do because it's just good business. And I'll give you the example recently of uh, 
you know, we have a, a, um, a microgrid system at Miramar, uh, 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 Marine, Marine Corps Air Base Miramar outside San Diego. And during the heat wave in California, what is it, we're in uh, a couple months ago, uh, Miramar was able to take their load offline 10 times, both help preserve the mission and also to help preserve the commercial electric grid for everybody. And their contribution helped avoid rolling blackouts in that part of Southern California. So I think the answer is that what we're doing, um, we started this conversation by talking about what the department's core mission is. And we've had this conversation around how what we're doing with respect to climate and energy aligns with that mission. Uh, it may be good for the climate, but you should be doing it anyway, because that's just the smart thing to do. All right, we're going to close with one last question. The driver for what the department's doing, national defense strategy, national security strategy, is competition with China. How does your office fit into the overall construct of the competition? Right. So the so national security strategy makes it pretty clear. National defense strategy makes it clear. Like we are in a decisive decade when it comes to when it comes to national security in this country um, and globally. And two things actually that my office is uh, in, focuses on quite a bit is one competition for, with China for the technologies that are going to define the future, and that includes military relevant technologies, especially in the energy space. When you look at Supply chains for clean energy. Clean energy, make no mistake about it. Uh, there is a massive global transformation happening around energy. It's defining markets. It's defining capability. And we need to be part of that competition, both for economic reasons and also for military reasons. Because look, our, our capabilities, we can derive a significant amount of capability from those technologies. So we, we are uh, very aware of the competition we have with China and very attuned to how do we bring those capabilities to the United States uh, reshoring as much as possible, or at least nearshoring it with allies and partners to make sure that we have the supply chains necessary to uh, capture the capability benefits of that technology. And then on climate, look, it's a decisive decade when it comes to climate. And as I said uh, a couple minutes ago, um, things are changing. Um, and that change isn't just happening for the United States, it's happening for everyone. And so we have to figure out whether in the competition with China, do we want to be the most resilient uh, to the change that's inevitably happening? Uh, just look around us. And if we can do that, if we can lead, if we can build the alliances and partnerships necessary, then we'll be the more resilient force. We'll be the more resilient country to the inevitable changes that we see happening around us. So. With that, I want to thank our guest, Joe Bryan, for thank joining you. us today. And thanks, everyone, for watching another episode of Emerging Tech Horizons. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.